This is Murder in the Black with Steph and M.D. And I'm MD. We have a, another Black History fact for you as we continue to celebrate Black History Month. We have a little known fact about the first African American man to hold the World Heavyweight Championship boxing title. I bet you didn't know, Steph, but this was a Black man. And his name was Jack. Johnson. He held on to the, he, he won the heavyweight championship boxing title in 1908 and he held on to this title until 1915. Cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a great little known black history fact for you today. And we just want to continue to celebrate Black History Month. So if you have a little known fact, why don't you drop it in the comments and let us know all about it. Tag us in it. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and get into our true crime case for the day. So grab your coffee if it's the morning, your lemonade if it's the afternoon, and your wine if it's the evening. But either way, let's get into it. All right. So in September of 2015, a shocking and horrifying event unfolded in a quiet neighborhood shattering the tranquility of the Irvin family home. The lives of the Irvin brothers, Christopher and Cameron, took a tumultuous turn as they attempted to extinguish the lives of their own parents in a heinous act that left an indelible mark on their family history. Dismantling the layers of this tragic event, we uncover a tale interwoven with simmering familial tension, drug abuse, financial struggles, and mental health challenges that ultimately led to unimaginable attempt. The episodes leading up to the attempted murder were tumultuous, marked by setbacks, drug dependency, and a spiraling dynamic within the family. Embark on a riveting exploration of the Irvin family tragedy from the haunting motives behind the attempted murder to the gripping consequences that reverberated far beyond their serene suburban abode. Join us as we unravel the events that led to the fateful night, delving into the complexities that culminated in an act of violence that would forever alter the lives of the Irvin family. 58-year-old Yvonne Irving called a 911 dispatcher, begging this dispatch dispatcher to come save the lives of both her and her husband, Zachary. Throughout this six-minute phone call, she told the dispatcher that she and her husband were asleep in her bed in their homes located in Snellville, Georgia, which, by the way, I never heard of Snellville, Georgia. I feel like I'm always constantly telling you guys I never heard, but seriously, never heard. But I am familiar of Gwinnett County, and this is where Snellville, Georgia is located. And she said that they were awakened to being smothered with pillows and viciously beaten with the butt of a gun and with the butt of her husband's shotgun while her husband was distracting the men who were attacking them. Now, she was away, locked in her bedroom, and the dispatcher asked her, was she aware of the men or could she identify the men that were attacking both her and her husband? And she said through tears that she could. It was actually her two sons. It was her 22-year-old son, Christopher, and her 17-year-old son, Cameron. The operator heard through her tears a male voice that entered the room or who asked a question, who are you talking to? And the phone call abruptly 
disconnected. Moments later, police arrive on the scene and they were greeted by the couple's oldest son, Christopher, who was sitting outside of the family's home with his face covered in scratches. He was immediately handcuffed and placed under arrest. But Zachary, who was the father of the young adults, the boys who were responsible for the vicious attack, he emerged out of the family's garage and he was covered in blood. He was distraught. He was stumbling with bruises and he was completely bloodied. He was rushed immediately by police officers to the attention of medics and the police immediately went over to the entrance of the home and they noticed the strong smell of gas so md i'm gonna ask you a question and listeners at home i'm gonna ask you a question as well even if you're in your car i want you to respond so a lot of us have gas stoves because that's commonplace for a lot of us and when you turn on your gas stove even on low do you notice the smell of gas yes i do Immediate, like if you turn it on, especially I have a gas stove. So like if you turn it on and you don't completely turn it to where it lights, mm-hmm. you know that. And so it's like, it's making a clicking noise. Yeah. The gas is the, the clicking noise is the gas c- coming out. It's like basically your prompt to keep turning. Right. So you can like make this fire ignite. But yes, even the smallest amount. And once you um, know what gas smells like. You'll never forget it. you never forget it. So even that very slight smell of gas, even when it's just a moment, you really smell it. And the longer that it's on, the more... You smell it. You smell it. Absolutely. So this was kind of like a trigger for investigators and police who were on scene to like really investigate and identify who else was in the home. And so they continued to investigate. And they found the youngest son, Cameron, and he also was covered in blood. I mean... The whole entire scene and everybody who they found on scene was covered in blood. And so it's not clear if they arrested him, but they definitely took him into custody as well. And so they continued to look because they knew Yvonne was on scene because she's the one who made that 911 call, um, that distressing 911 phone call. And they found her bloodied and bruised in her room. And so Yvonne and Zachary were immediately taken to the hospital to be examined and treated for their injuries and we know by now you know if you're a true crime fan and which we all know you guys are because you listen to us you know injuries and blood on the scene they really give us a opportunity and they really tell the story of what has happened right and we call that forensics and when they take Zachary and Yvonne to the hospital we really kind of find out what happened it gave us a snapshot on what happened that night and so at the hospital doctors would count over 10 stab wounds to zachary's 
upper torso, as well as bruising. He was hit with a shotgun as well. And although Yvonne suffered bruising to her neck and her head, she was able to tell police with a statement from the hospital bed what occurred. So, MD, do you want to know what happened that night? Give us the tea, girl. We want to know. I mean, girl, you know, but I'm going to I mean, but they don't know, so tell them. (laughs) I'm going to tell you again, girl. Okay, that night, before, the night before, Cameron comes to his parents. Now, remember, Cameron's 17 years old, and he comes to his parents, and he asks if he could hang out with his friends, and they tell him no. You know, no. And for whatever the reasons were, they just said, you know, no, you can't hang out with your friends. And this is not uncommon when you're a teenager. Sometimes your parents says no. Right. Oftentimes your parents say no. Right. And so a little while later, he gets over it or seemingly gets over it. And he and his brother come into the room and they ask both Yvonne and Zachary if they can cook them dinner. And Yvonne admits to detectives that this is a little bit different. It's a rare occurrence, but Yvonne and Zachary both acquiesce. They say, sure, a little odd, but hey, who are we to turn down dinner? Sure, make us dinner. So they all sit down and they eat. And overall, it's a pretty good night. But after they have their meal and they're sitting down, Both Zachary and Yvonne start to feel a little dizzy. And, you know, they're middle-aged. They're 58, you know what I mean? (laughs) And they're chucking this up to, we probably just need to go to sleep, you know, catch some Zs. After a good night's rest, we'll feel better. And so they both decide they're going to lay down and get some rest for the night. And a few hours later, Yvonne is awakened to Cameron smothering her in the bed with a pillow my god and beating her in the head with what she comes to realize is the butt of her husband's shotgun so zachary recalls a similar story about the night's events but unlike his wife when he's smothered he starts to fight back and this is what is called instincts And the funny thing about instincts, MD, is that in instincts, you never know what you'll do when you're put in a fight or flight response. Right. I mean, you can always assume, but really you don't know until you're in it. Right. So once Cameron realized he was going, he wasn't going to be able to overpower his father, He ran to his father's closet to get his father's shotgun because he knew his father kept his shotgun in the closet. So let's talk a little bit about Zachary and Zachary's build. His father was middle-aged, about 58, but Zachary was stacked, okay? He worked out. And we, of course, included pictures of Zachary this week so you guys can see that Zachary was well-built. I mean, he wasn't the buffest guy in the world. He wasn't No, you know, prize fighter like MD was talking about earlier in our episode. But he was, you know, he lifted weights. He was a pretty good, you know, size of a dude. And although Cameron was 17 years old and was young, he wasn't going to be able to take out his daddy just by smothering smothering him with a pillow. And when you're in a, I'm going to tell you guys about the fight or flight response later on in a second. But when you got that adrenaline rushing through your body, baby, it's not going to work out too well for you. Okay? It just isn't. So, you know, instinctively, talking about instincts, Cameron kind of knew that. So he goes to the closet where Zachary keeps the gun and he starts to use the gun to his advantage. Right? And so... Zachary is kind of winning over Cameron, right? And so Zachary gets out of the bed and he starts to run away. And in the midst of this, because of this, I should say, Yvonne is able to get away, right? Like because of this struggle, he's able to distract Yvonne and she's able to get away. 
So Zachary would eventually flee the room with Cameron following close behind him. And once he's caught up to his dad, he repeatedly stabs his dad in the upper torso. Despite all of his injuries, Zachary would make it to the garage, get in his car and lay on the horn in an attempt to get his neighbor's attention. Mm. You guys. That is, a, that's just. That's I mean, an amazing response, and just the for, the fortitude, the thought, the the um, the thought process to be able to think like that in the middle of such a chaotic, crazy fight for his life. Oh yeah, it's it is absolutely amazing, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is what is called the fight or flight response and what is responsible for that well i'm here to give you your science lesson for the week okay okay science lesson i mean i have to give it to you so you have your sympathetic nervous system which is control of that right so usually what happens in those situations is that things that you can't control is affected so your eyes your heart and your lungs and your digestive tract and your liver are all engaged, right? So what happens with your eyes? They enlarge, your pupils tend to let more light in, your heart rate increases, your lungs relax, your airways, so you can have more oxygen to your lungs, your digestive tract slows down, so you can have more energy, so you, you don't have to digest food, right? Your liver activates more energy so you can start to move faster, right? So all of these things start to activate so that you can start to use all these things so you can act quicker, act quicker, so you can think faster, right? So MD just said, oh my gosh, what such an amazing quick, quick time for him to react, to think quick like that. Yeah, he thought quick like that because of his fight or flight response. So all of those things were being used in his body so that he could have that quick reaction time. So that was your that was your science lesson for the day. For that day. Yes. So MD kind of like tell us what happened after that because now we know the two boys are in custody. I'm saying boys, but they were kind of like High key grown, so yeah, I mean, because you know they they were twenty two and seventeen, and I think and so they were arrested, Steph, and they were taken to to the the police station. But before we dive into what happened at the police station, I think it's just kind of I think we need to tell the 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 audience our MIB fam just a little bit more about the brothers, right? Like, who are they? So I'm going to start with Christopher because he's the oldest. So who is Christopher? So Christopher, well, he was 22 at the time that this happened. And he graduated from Shiloh High School, uh, and he went to college to play football just like his father. He went to the University of Charleston in West Virginia and was aiming for the pros. He had Big shoes to fill, Steph, because he wanted to be just like his father, who was a star in his own right when it came to football. However, Christopher's time at West Virginia was short-lived because he left early after only one year, allegedly due to drug use. Now, with his football career seemingly in shambles, he decides to transfer to Valdosta State University, hoping to salvage what little left he had and to try to still utilize his football skills to get through college. But he ended up leaving there soon after he got there as well because he didn't have enough money because he no longer was on scholarship. And so he didn't have enough money to continue and either not enough money or not enough credits to graduate. One of the two. So Christopher moved back home to finish at Georgia State, but he failed to finish there as well due to drug use. So Christopher decided, I'm going to give this one more round. I'm going to give this one more go. I'm trying to just get my life together, right? He decided to go to the Air Force and give give the, the military a shot. 
And while it's unclear what exactly happened while he was in the Air Force, whether it was a failed drug test or anxiety issues, the Air Force ended up discharging him from his duties. So now Chris finds himself back in Georgia and trying to pick up the pieces of what has seemingly been a failed attempt at adulthood so far. Chris then tries to to take a job working a forklift with his father's company. But again, can you guess, Steph, what happened? It fails. It fails because this pesky little thing called a drug test gets in the way yet again. And so he's just really not having a lot of success. And allegedly it's due to these this drug use that he has picked up. And just a few is there is there a drug in particular like or so is it... you know and I was I was gonna get to that but I'll, okay, I'll, I'm I'll no I'm I'm gonna veer off that's what's so great about this podcast is we don't have to stick to a script so Steph he was his parents knew that he was on marijuana and pot he smoked pot in high school but they didn't realize that this drug use had actually taken a turn to be a lot more abusive than what he knew and. Chris was really involved specifically with Xanax. Okay, I'm going to stop you and ask you a, a question because, you know, we, we can go into these other conversations, sub-conversations. So do you think that, I love how you said pot, it's sh- it showing your age, MD. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, girl, we... We, marijuana, um, pot, you know, MJ, Mary Jane. All yes. Things. So, do you think it is a gateway drug? That is a great conversation. <laughs> and I, I I, honestly cannot give that answer with, like... A caveat and more right, conversation. Right. I, I mean, well, I can't give that answer with, like, scientific research back up. I don't mm-hmm. know. I know that it is alleged mm-hmm. to be a gateway drug. But then I also know people... I know... Personally, people who have smoked weed since we were in high school and they have never tried, never gone down another drug ever, ever. Right. So it so, but that's not fair. That's not fair for me to say based on these this small ratio of people that as because of that, it's I can say wholeheartedly that it's not a gateway drug. I don't think I can. But I, I just know that from my personal experience and by my personal experience, I'm saying people that I know, I I have not seen it be a gateway drug. But I do know that that was once the the prevailing truth, although I feel like it's now shifting to say it's not a gateway drug because now we're trying to make it e- make it legal in all the states. So I, I really, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's a gateway drug? You know, I I personally don't think that it is. So that, but that's just my own opinion. I think it can be, but I think a, I think a lot of things could be. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. But okay, but back back to the story. But back to the story. So now just a few weeks prior to the this horrendous attack on his parents, Chris actually got into a car accident where, according to his father, he had been drinking, but the police actually let him go uh, as a, on a warning. Like, they were like, okay, don't worry about it. We're going to let you get off. Just go home, basically. And so he got out, got out of that situation. But his father actually found Xanax in his pocket from the pants that he was wearing during the accident. So although they had only knew at prior to this accident that it was just weed, pot, marijuana, at this point they now knew that, oh, no, this may be a bigger issue. This may be a bigger problem with Chris. So that's a little bit of background on Christopher. Now, who is Cameron? Cameron, he was 17, so he's the younger brother in this situation. And he... It was very clear from Cameron that he felt neglected by his parents. It was a very strong neglect for him. And while Cameron was, you know, uh, in school, he actually dropped out of football. So he, too, was following in this path of playing football like his father and like his big brother. But he dropped out of football and decided to pick up 
playing in the band, specifically the marching band. And according to Cameron, this really didn't sit well with his father. He became distant and didn't come to support Cameron in any of his competitions or games. And this, for Cameron, seemed to be like a wedge between him and his father. Now, Cameron was known as a very smart kid. Um, not unlike his brother. I don't want to say his brother wasn't smart, but that was never mentioned about Christopher. But with Cameron, it was mentioned. It was mentioned. Lots of people talked about how Cameron was known to be very smart. But according to Cameron, he was also known for having a bad temper, which he said was much like his father. Now, Cameron admitted that even at, at the age of 11, he had ideations of killing his parents. Now, Steph, what do you think about that? I think that's interesting. I, I think that's really suggestive of maybe a mental a mental instability there. Absolutely, or some For sort sure. of narcissism. Yeah. Just something is not quite Off, right. I don't yeah. think it's normal that at the age of 11, at any age, but specifically at a young age, like 11, that you're having ideations of killing your parents. And he said that he felt this way, or he thinks he felt this way, because he felt disconnected from them. Because they, were, they weren't there. They were always gone, working, traveling for work. It just, he didn't feel connected to his parents. And then when they were home, they weren't letting him do what he wanted to do. You know, typical teenage mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Cameron really did feel this just sense of alone, you know, lonely. And that makes sense because his brother was also off in college, so he didn't have his brother there. He's saying his parents were traveling a lot, wasn't home. And so this led Cameron to also engaging in drugs and having women over at the house when they weren't supposed to be there. Their dad began to notice, you know, money started to disappear from the dresser, and this led, at this point, Chris is now back home. And this led to the father giving the boys a lie detector test. Steph, would you ever go that far to find out if your children were telling the truth or a lie? Yeah, no, that is absolutely crazy. Because, I mean, there's, way to, there's ways to beat that. Because that really just tests how anxious you are, like... Right. So it's not even it. it's not even an accurate, you know, it's not even I don't want to say an accurate test, but it's not a test that even carries any weight in a court of law. Mm -hmm. So why would you do but even bigger than this, you guys, like even bigger than this stuff, even bigger than it's not even a a test that holds weight in the court of law. Why do you have this test? I just think that that is just, because what is your job? And I tried to find out what he did, but, I mean, we know that something to do with forklift companies, because remember, Chris, like, went and worked for his company, and he was lifting, lifting forklifts. I, I, I don't see how that correlates with any, any use of having a lie detector. I just don't even understand how we got here. How did we get here? <laughs> right. How, how did we? Sorry. Like, yes. Seriously. Well, just like we're baffled, the brothers were also baffled, and these tests would also show that Cameron had some level of deception, whether or not he really did or he was just super anxious. We don't, you know, that's the thing about the test. But feelings of neglect, unfairness, injustice with lie detector tests and my parents don't trust me led the brothers to feeling resentful, which is what they both shared with the police. So now that we have a little bit of background on the brothers, let's fast forward back to this interrogation, which stuff wasn't really an interrogation because as you know, the brothers didn't deny what happened because how could they? The, they knew about, they knew their mom called, you know, 911. They know their parents are still alive. The police actually told them. And so there's witnesses to the, this event. So the brothers were very candid with the, the investigators, and they told them what happened. Now, Chris was more forth, forthcoming with what happened in their investigation. The, the investigators separated the brothers, and they, were, they put them in different rooms, and they spoke with them separately. Now, when they spoke with Chris, Chris stated that him and Cameron 
turned on the gas and lit the fire that night, lit the fireplace, and they put tea tree candles around the house, and then they went outside to wait for the house to blow up. Now, they got this idea from the Tyler Perry show, The Haves and the Have-Nots. Steph, do you know this show? I do, and I'm over here trying to figure out how did Tyler Perry end up in this true crime. Tyler Perry. I wonder what he thinks about this. Listen, he is all involved. I'm sure he's somewhere shaking his head, but they got this from an episode where the characters did a similar thing by turning on the gas, lighting the fireplace, and putting candles. Now, I don't know if they put tea tree candles because that seems really not smart. Because if you know tea tree candles, they're the little tiny ones, the really small ones. (laughs) They're not big. But either way, in the haves and the have-nots episode, this actually caused the house to blow up. So they call themselves hoping for a similar result. But while they're sitting on the side of the curb, nothing happens to the house. I mean, but, like, listen here. Like, they turn the gas on, right? And from everything that I know about blowing up something, you got to put some gasoline around the place and then throw, even if they had the gas on and they lit some candles, you also have to have an activator. You got to start the fire. You got to start the fire. I mean, they was hoping the fire just started. Like, they was on some prayers and hopes. And they were. Because nothing And they were truly surprised. They were like, and nothing happened. We waited all night. And they were literally on the side, according to Chris, they were sitting on the side of this curb outside waiting for like a couple hours, like waiting for this to take place, and it didn't. So they decide. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Absolutely they are not smarter than a fifth grader. Because they really thought their plan was, (laughs) Fireproof. You know, all the pun intended. Fireproof. But it in fact wasn't. And but at this point they felt they had to commit to this plan because like Steph said, once the gas was lit, the smell of gas was throughout the house and Chris knew that. And so Chris, in fact, he stated, and I quote, We just wanted to blow the house up. We waited all night and didn't work. But the whole house smells like gasoline. How are we going to explain this? Well, it's too late now, end quote. So he goes on further to say that him and Cameron discussed, you know, even going up to their parents' room and telling them that someone tried to break into the house and needed to get out. But they felt like this just was not going to be believable. So they just decided we're going to go all in and we're going to go upstairs. We're going to smother our parents and beat them up and kill them. And you know the rest of the story. Steph gave it to you. So that is how it unfolded for Chris. Now, when the police go in and talk to Cameron, you know, Cameron, he really is way more vague. And really, in hindsight, going back and looking at after I because you can actually watch the these interrogations on YouTube. You can pull it up and we it'll be in our show notes where you can actually watch watch it. I watched it a couple times, especially Cameron's interrogation, because if you go back and watch it, you can totally tell that Cameron's the younger brother, number one. And then number two, it really seems to me like Cameron is trying to protect Chris. He's trying to shield him from the blame of the situation. He doesn't talk about how they tried to blow the house up. He kind of just skims over a lot of that. He talks about how him and his father got into this big argument and it's unclear whether the argument happened at night, the next morning. Like it was just very unclear because he's like the the argument happened between me and my father. We're both very hot-headed. It really got intense. Chris tried to break it up. He was successful. He calmed me down. I went to my room. I tried to sleep it off. I couldn't, so I grabbed the gun and I tried to kill my my parents. So, you know, and he's saying he doesn't he doesn't bring Chris into this situation and he doesn't talk about his culpability or his involvement at all. It's all him. He cries a lot during this, you know, investigation. You can tell there's a lot of remorse there and whether it's remorse for I got caught or remorse for 
what did I do? This is the situation. What's really interesting, Steph and MIB fam, is that at no point during these interrogations or this just discussion with the investigators, do they either one, Chris or Cameron, elaborate on what happened to their mom? They talk about what happened to their dad and what they did to their dad and their attempt on their dad, but they don't talk about what they did to their mom. They don't talk about how they beat the mom up. We obviously know she got beaten up because you can. they have pictures of her. She had two big swollen black eyes, scratches on her face. But they kind of just, it's almost like they separate themselves from that. They don't want to engage in that conversation. But as I said, this really wasn't an investigation into did you do it? It was really more, why? What is the motive here? They could never really pinpoint the motive. The brothers do discuss just this neglect, the feeling of not, you know, their, their, their parents not being around, their parents not allowing them to do, but it, it never just kind of gets into the weeds. And Steph, you and I talked as we were preparing for this podcast of how this case is eerily similar to the Menendez brothers case. But one of the things that I found just, I don't want to say relatable, but something that I could just understand a little bit more is that the Menendez brothers, not right off, not in the beginning, but eventually came out with their motive at trial. And at trial, their motive for killing their parents was abuse, sexual abuse. Here, we either A, don't get the motive because the brothers never come out with it, or B, because they never go to trial. Like they admit, they they go and they plead guilty to the 13 charges that were that were against them. And so we never get the motive. And I think that's what makes this case so just strange and uncomfortable. And you just kind of feel like, why? Well, Either way, and we will discuss that probably in our takeaway notes, but either way, the boys were charged with 13 counts of of felonies. They pled guilty. Um, These charges included aggravated assault and first-degree arson. They were tried as adults, and they were found, you know, obviously they were found guilty because they pled guilty. They were sentenced to 20 years um, in prison with a minimum sentence of they had to serve at least 10 of those years and they would have probation for 30 years after they were released. Now, what's very interesting here is that they had so many people that came out and spoke on their behalf, including their parents, who just weeks after this incident occurred, went on a media tour, so to speak, where they discussed forgiving their 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 sons and hoping for a light sentence to be given to their boys. Uh, a light sentence was given in my opinion because they were eligible for up to life in prison. 50 years to life. Uh they ended up getting 20 with serving only 10. As a matter of fact, in 2025 they will be eligible for parole. So just next year they will be eligible for parole. Their parents went on to, uh, one of the quotes that their parents said is, we love our sons. We love them unconditionally. This was just one bad moment. The Irvins, uh, the, the mom and dad, went on to start an organization called Fighting for Forgiveness Incorporated, which on their website says that it was founded as a result of traumatic family event that occurred on 2015. The incident for the Irvins, they say it gave us personal insight into the world of depression and how detrimental it can be when it goes undetected. One of the things that at the sentencing, at at the boys' sentencing, Chris actually stood up and he stated, before I came here, before I was arrested, and this is a quote, I honestly was at the lowest point in my life. 
After graduating high school, I increased drug use to the point where it became not only something that I felt that I needed to have to cope through my days, but it was also something that hindered me from being my best. Steph, we can either quickly go to takeaways or do you have any closing remarks before we go? Yeah, we can go to takeaway. All right, take us away. All right, so yes, takeaway. I personally, you know, I, it, this reminded me of the Menendez brothers and with the the um, investigation where the two brothers were in the interview room with the detectives and the detectives were really trying to get to the motive of what happened in the relationship with the brothers and the, and the parents. You can tell that, that, that there was obviously a disconnect between the brothers and their mother. Like there was an obvious disconnect because at one point in time, both brothers had a good relationship with their father at one point in time. Obviously, there was none at all with the mother because we don't even really know like who was responsible if like we know that Cameron at one point in time attacked his mother, but we don't even know if Christopher like took a part in that attack at all. Like it just was very odd that relationship or that attack with the mother, like, you know, and that relationship with the mother. And so I think there is more to that motive there with the mother. So I guess I'm not really done. So this is it's going to bleed into my takeaway. Um, but I do think that it was both of the boys, in my opinion, were manipulators intentionally because as the investigators were talking to them trying to get to the bottom of their motive on why they attempted murder on their parents they intentionally muddied the waters on why they attacked their parents they were intentionally trying to um blame their parents like you know, my parents were barely at home. And yeah, I did get into a car accident because I was high off of Xanax. And my dad was questioning me about that. But like, how dare my dad question me about that? Like, dude, you were high off of Xanax and you got into a car accident. Like, what? Yeah, I was unsupervised at home with girls. But like, how dare my parents tell me no because I want to hang out with my friends. Like, it's... It's like, what? Like, you could tell they were trying to manipulate the situation to be something that was unclear to why they were trying to attempt murder on their parents, why they were trying to murder their parents. And so I say all that to say, sometimes the motivation on why people want to murder is clear. They were just evil. Like, in my opinion. And they just wanted their parents gone so that they could have their parents' money. Now, does that mean that their parents weren't neglectful? No. Right? That all can be true. Their parents still could have been emotionally abusive in some ways. Maybe their parents weren't there for them as much as they could have been. But I'm sorry. You don't get to murder your parents because of that. <laughs> no. That's not in the rule book. You know what I mean? Like, you don't get to kill your parents because of that. You know? And I really just believe that for them, they bonded over the fact that it was easier for their parents to be gone. And there were some other theories with the Ir Irvin brothers that we didn't explore. Like, um, for instance, and we encourage you guys to go and look this up. There's not a ton of information that you can find like readily all in one place. But um, Cameron was dating a stripper in Atlanta. And there was a theory that he was trying to get some life insurance money, kill his parents so he could continue to fund her lifestyle. That could have been true. You know, um, of course, you know, it could be that they were 
mentally ill. He had some ideations of killing his parents when he was 11. You know, so that could all still be true. Um, but I just, for me, I just really think they were manipulating that situation and trying to make it seem like truly, you know, our parents were this and our parents were that. But no, like you were just trying to kill them because it just was easier for you to do that. And when you didn't watch the full episode of the haves and half nots and it didn't, you know, it wasn't carried out in the way that you thought on TV, then you just thought you could kill them otherwise and you just didn't have the strength to do it, you know? So unfortunately, you know, I think this is, this case is so hard because I think, you know, as a parent, MD and I were both talking, you know, I think as a parent, I don't know what I would do because their parents are sticking beside them. They still go and visit them as of 2022. They have pictures with them. They go visit them in jail. Um, you know, Christopher on his Instagram or Facebook page says that he's the founder of the nonprofit organization. So what does that even tell you? The narcissism. Anyway, you know, I just, you know, it's just, it's interesting. This case is interesting. So I, that is, that's not even a takeaway. I, well, that is a takeaway. I think sometimes the motivation isn't murky. It's not, it's not gray. Sometimes it truly is just black and white. People are just evil and they just, they just want the money. They're greedy. And I just think that the Irvin brothers are greedy. That's my takeaway. Yeah. I think that's a, Fair takeaway, and I think I'm interested to know what you guys think in the comments. I really don't have much to add here in terms of discussing the Irwin brothers. I just think it's so amazing that you could kill your parents or try to kill your parents. And I know that people do it. Uh, you know, it's not new. This is, is they're not the first. They won't be the last. This is is you know something that. Like Steph said, evil people do or mental health people do. But I think what's so frustrating, what Steph is saying is that you don't want to, it's, it's a cop out almost in this generation, in this culture today to, to, to blame everything on mental illness. And it gets frustrating because you're like, it can't always all be mental illness. And surely there are people with mental illness that wouldn't do this. And so it's, you know, sometimes, like Steph said, it's just really black and white. And whether it was or not, I don't really have much to add to. I think the only thing that I would just say is that the tension that their parents must be living with to want to forgive their sons because you birthed them. These are very much, you know, especially for a mom, I carried you in my womb for nine months. Like... In most cases, nine and a half. And you tried to kill me. You know, that there's got to be a very real tension that their parents have. And they're walking in that forgiveness. And I, I commend them for that. Like, honestly, I do. I don't know what I would do. And I, I think it's so, it's, it's, some of you probably are sitting in your cars right now or got your AirPods on and you're listening to this and you're like, oh no, I know exactly what I would do. And I think it's easy to say that when you're not in that person's shoes and you're not walking a mile in, you know, <laughs> in, in their shoes and what they're, they're having to live through. I, I don't want to say what I would and wouldn't do. I just know that that would be a tremendous tension that I would have to wrestle with because your love for your children really, it's probably almost, it's the closest to unconditional love that you'll ever experience in this world and it is not as easy as it may seem to just write off your child so you know to their parents I say good luck on this journey of forgiveness because it's whether they like to say that they have completely forgiven them or not it's easy right now because they're behind bars you know, that's going to be a whole nother world when they are eligible for parole and they're walking amongst us. Do you let them back in your home? Do you do you welcome them back with open arms? Do you keep them at a distance? I don't have a right or wrong answer to that. 
you know. So I say good luck on that journey to those boys. I truly hope they got the therapy that they obviously so desperately needed. Let's go ahead and get into our poll results from last week. Our episode from last week was the case about George Young, and we entitled that I Want You Back. Now, the poll question was, do you think it's okay to talk to the opposite sex about problems with your partner or spouse? 6% of you said, yes, that is totally fine for you. 55% of you said, no. 27% of you said maybe, and 10% of you said, if my partner has said it's okay. So I am not surprised that 55% of you said no. And I highly encourage you that if you're having trouble with your spouse, you know, try to go to therapy and work it out. I am an advocate for therapy. And if you can't work it out with a therapist, you know, go to, go to your pastor or seek some counseling, you know, try to work it out amongst yourself, go to a family, friend, something, figure it out. Okay, so not at all surprised by those poll results. You guys know I love talking to y'all in the polls and or questions. We did not have a poll question and or question for you guys in this week's episode, but you can guarantee that I have already came up with one for this episode. So make sure you engage with that poll and or question for this week's episode about the Irvin family. I most definitely have one for you for this week. Just a quick reminder, we have officially been approved for Apple paid subscription. So if Apple is the main platform in which you listen to Murder in the Black and you want to enjoy some bonus content and you have finally like, you know, fixed some things in your budget and you have a little extra room for Murder in the Black because you know we family, then you can enjoy some paid subscriptions on Apple Podcasts. You don't even have to come over to Spotify, which is our hosting website. For our hosting platform, you can stay on Apple Podcasts. And so we have that. We actually have on Apple Podcasts a free trial. So you can have a free trial for about three days just to listen to what we have. It's ad-free content. And in the month of February, we're actually giving you a little bit more bang for your book. We're keeping it at $4.99 for a while. We're not going to change that. So we're actually, instead of just one bonus true crime um, ad-free true crime case we're giving you guys two because it's black history month so we encourage you guys to become a part of the crew that's what i call the paid subscription crew become a part of the crew listen to us you get a free trial over on apple Podcasts. so just want to announce that to you guys as well um so yeah continue to do what y'all are doing i love y'all y'all know that Um, share if you care this episode with friends and family, want you guys to smash that share button. We know that you guys are sharing our episodes. We definitely appreciate it. Um, we will see you guys next week. So until next time, this is murder in the black and you guys know what I'm going to say. Love you. Bye.